Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello everyone and welcome back to British Murders. This is the podcast which focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 10th episode of season 3. Now if you're familiar with the show you'll realise that each season is 10 episodes long and therefore this is the third season finale. Before we get into it, I just want to say a massive thank you to all of my listeners as the show has recently surpassed 100,000 downloads and I'm absolutely over the moon. I can't quite believe I've got that many downloads on my little show that I just make out of my little makeshift office. I didn't think it'd take off as it has and be so well received. So from the bottom of my heart, I am truly thankful to each and every one of you who've taken the time out of your busy lives to just listen to me. I say talk about true crime, chat shit more than anything. True crime's about 5% of what I do. I do have a couple of shout outs to make this week. The first one goes to Katie Morris. Thank you for buying me five beers. And to Rose Bundy, the infamous Rose Bundy. Three beers you bought me on buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders. Thanks for that, both of you. And Mr. T Forrester, thank you to you for leaving me a five-star review on iTunes. We'll come back to those at the end. I just wanted to shout those people out at the very start of this episode. I've also had a significant uplift in the volume of people reaching out to me recently, which is absolutely amazing. I've had a fair few case suggestions now, I think because I've been plugging that so much on my previous episodes. I will be covering those in season four. And for everyone that submits a case to me, if I end up covering that on the show, you will get a shout out within that episode. So a little bit of an incentive just to get in touch with me. Just please message me, I'm lonely. Okay, that's my intro nonsense done with. Let's get into dad facts. You thought I was going to go into true crime there, didn't you? No, let's go into dad facts. Now, for anyone that isn't aware, this is a new segment. I think this is week number three. And my little girl, who is three now, bought me this gift a few years ago for Father's Day. It's like a set of playing cards with dad facts on them. Facts that every dad should know, and naturally I know... None of them so far. In fact, no, I knew the one last week. Was that airplane mode last week? No, last week was the South African one. Apparently my accent's terrible. Coming from someone who is from South Africa. It's called a Safa accent, apparently. But other people not from South Africa said it were great. So, what can you do? you got to listen to the natives. So I'm just shuffling the cards so you can probably hear that. Let's have a look. Dad fact number three. This says, Bruce Willis lost two-thirds of the hearing in his left ear whilst filming Die Hard. Not sure how useful that would be if you were lost in the woods or on a Bear Grylls show. Still interesting. Yeah. Good film, Die Hard. Two-thirds of the hearing in his left ear. That's the lion's share. But yeah, that's dad facts again. (laughs) 
It's a pretty shit fact, that, isn't it? It's hardly a dad fact. But anyway, now that that's done, we can finally get into this week's episode. The setting this time is Luton, which is a, a town in Bedfordshire. It's located around 30 miles north of London, so it is down south. It's basically part of London. If you're from outside of that area, it's basically London. Um, now, Luton is a very old town. My research indicates it's around 250,000 years old and it's home to the fifth busiest airport in the UK. That's London Luton Airport. According to Aspen Wolf, the airport dates back to 1938 and it was used by the RAF or Royal Air Force in World War II as their base. So they actually used the airport for their sort of army base back in World War II. It is a mega busy airport. I've never visited it myself, but my mate used to work down there for EasyJet and it handles apparently over 14 million passengers each year. Now for anyone in a far bigger country than England, that might seem like a negligible number, but here it's quite a busy airport to be fair. London has six sort of major airports in there and Luton I think is the fourth biggest and but the fifth busiest in the UK. So size doesn't necessarily denominate how busy an airport is. I'm boring myself with these airport facts. One listener I know will love his airport facts and he'll probably correct me on them. Oh, I'm boring myself. Stick to flight simulator, pal. Luton has its own carnival, just called the Luton Carnival. It's traditionally held on Springbank Holiday Monday and it's the largest one-day carnival in Europe. Now, Springbank Holiday, if you don't know, is a national holiday in England and Wales, which falls on the last Monday in May each year. Now, as I said, the Luton Carnival was traditionally held on that day. However, since 2013, it's been held on the Sunday instead. I assume that's just so people can go out and get pissed without having to work the next day. That's normally why we go out on Bank Holiday Sundays. With regards to this episode, you'll have noticed that in the title, there's two subjects in there. Now, they share the same surname. Why? Because they were sisters. Saima, the older of the two, and Saba were raised in the Netherlands and moved to the UK when Saba was 18. I couldn't find any information regarding the birth dates of either sister, but I do know they moved from the Netherlands to Overston Road in Luton in 2009. With the sisters were their parents and two brothers. They were a Muslim family, however not in the traditional or orthodox sense. They didn't wear hijabs or other religious clothing items associated with the Islam. They also spoke fluent Dutch as a result of their time in the Netherlands, naturally. But it's in 2011, a couple of years after moving to the UK, that's when things started to change for the Khan family. Saima, who again was the older of the two sisters, she was seven years older than Saba, was set up with a man from Pakistan who was to become her husband. It was an arranged marriage. Hafiz Rayman, who was three years older than Saima, and therefore ten years older than Saba, and gets confused with the maths and the names are similar, he made the move from Pakistan to Luton and moved into the already crowded household on Overston Road. It is very common for multiple generations of Muslim families to live under the same roof. I'm not a Muslim myself, nor do I follow any religion for that matter, but my understanding is that family is of major importance within the Muslim faith and it forms a major part of the basic building blocks of life. One key difference though, now that Hafiz had moved in, was that he brought with him his more traditional Muslim values and beliefs, 
a direct contrast to how the Khan family had previously lived their lives. Saima was expected to support Hafiz, keep the family home clean and bear his children. Not a believer in using protection when it came to sex, because why would you? Joking. Hafiz and Saima soon had four children living in the Khan family home, along with Saba, her brothers and her parents, so they didn't waste any time having kids. Four kids came along really, really quickly. So that means, in the house, we have a total of 11 people spanning three generations, all in Overston Road's property in Luton. It was a semi-detached house, but probably still was a little bit cramped. I mean, it doesn't make a difference to the story, but it's worth pointing out that some sources state that both brothers lived at the house, whereas other sources state that only one brother lived there. Again, it's irrelevant, but you've got to point these things out, otherwise people will go, you said that both brothers lived there, but only one lived there. You've got to preempt the nitpicking sometimes. You may be thinking, okay, aside from the busy household, everything seems to be going perfectly fine for the Khans. Here's the twist you've been waiting for. Saba, 10 years Hafiz's junior and little sister to his wife, became infatuated with him. Hafiz used Saba's vulnerability and youth to his advantage, which led to the two having an affair behind Saima and the rest of the family's back. This wasn't a short-winded affair either, they were doing this for four years. And remember how I said Hafiz refused to wear protection? Can you guess what happened next? Yep. Saba fell pregnant with her brother-in-law's child. This is straight-up Jeremy Kyle shit. Or Jerry Springer shit. Now, before I tell you what Saba did next, what would you have done? And that naturally isn't a question aimed at the men listening. But let's just say, for argument's sake, you've had an affair with your brother-in-law, no judgement. You've had sex in your sister's marital bed. Work with me on this one. And you all live together with your parents siblings, and nieces and nephews. You've basically got two choices here. Would you A, opt to keep the child, or B, terminate the pregnancy? That's a real dilemma of a question, because on the one hand, Saba was basically in love with Hafiz, and she believed those feelings were reciprocated. But in reality, bringing his child into the world would have potentially, well, would have most definitely ruined the family, destroyed her relationship with each and every one of them, and, most likely as well, left her alone to raise her unborn child. In this situation, Saba opted for option B, terminate the pregnancy. The whole affair and abortion situation severely affected Saba's mental state and she was really struggling to cope. She spent some time studying for a law degree at university, but she simply became too overwhelmed and she couldn't continue, and she ultimately dropped out. She'd become insanely jealous of her sister's relationship with her husband, to the point where she would read their respective phones and fume at the messages they would send to each other. Imagine that, being so infatuated with your sibling's husband or wife, that just reading their normal messages to each other infuriates you. I mean, I don't have any siblings, but that's by the by. Saba would even go to the extreme of threatening to harm herself if Hafiz didn't sleep with her. Now just before I continue, I just want to nip this in the bud. I don't want you to think I'm painting a sympathy story for Saba 
or that I'm suggesting Hafiz wasn't to blame for any of what went on. I'm also cautious that not much has been said about Saima thus far, and she's the real victim in all of this. The reason for that is that there simply wasn't enough information available about her when I conducted my research for this episode. Hafiz, who basically wanted to use Saba for sex rather than for a relationship, wasn't as madly in love with her as she thought. Saba was displaying all the signs of a delusional disorder known as erotomania. Erotomania occurs when a person strongly believes that a person is in love with them despite there being evidence to the contrary. To be fair to her, Hafiz didn't help her delusions as he at one point made an inquiry with the local imam to see if he could take on Saba as a second wife. The imam, the name for someone who leads Muslim worshippers in prayer, stated that marrying two sisters at the same time is forbidden in Islam as it can cause ill will, competition and jealousy. In 2016, after the affair had been going on for four years, four years, that's long that isn't it? So in 2016, four years, Hafiz and Saima made the decision to plan to leave the family home and set up on their own elsewhere in Luton. Now there's two things to note here. The first is that I didn't read anywhere whilst conducting my research that Saima was aware of this affair going on. And that seems quite unbelievable, doesn't it? There's, what, 11 of them living in this house? They're sleeping together in Saima's bed? Now, surely, even if Saima's at work when the affair's happening, someone in the house must have heard something. There must have been sort of murmurings going on behind the scenes. Maybe she didn't have a clue. Who knows? But the other point is, it wasn't clear whether leaving the family home was because Hafiz sort of actually wanted to start on his own with his family, or if he just wanted to escape from Saba. I mean, it seems logical that he wanted to get out of there for his own sanity. Saba, who was devastated by the news of her, well, the love of her life in her head leaving, felt the only solution left to get the man she wanted was to take Saima out of the picture completely. Now, at first, she wanted to take the responsibility out of her hands and not do the deed herself. Check this out. She gained contact with someone in Pakistan who labelled themselves as a witch doctor or a fixer. Saba paid this person £5,000 and requested that they get rid of Saima in order for her to be happy with who she thought was her one true love, Hafiz. If you're getting confused at all this, you're not the only one, trust me. I had to read through this a couple of times before I grasped what the hell was going on. The plan was for the fixer who performed black magic, naturally, to put a spell on Saima, which would ultimately result in her death. One text message sent by Saba to this fixer said, Sorry to bother you again and again. My friend is really upset now Hafiz does not even look at her. He says he realises his mistake. You finish off Saima as quick as possible so Saba can get her Hafiz back. To me, that's pretty weird because it sounds like Saba is referring to herself in the third person and asking for the spell to be committed on behalf of someone else. Like the whole, I'm asking for a friend meme. It seems weird that she was so bothered to not let the fixer think it was her asking for this favour directly when the dude practices black magic and says he'll put a spell on someone to kill him. I just picture some guy like a wizard's hat, like Merlin, saying... Yeah, yeah, I'll kill her, yeah. Not a problem at all, pal. 
Oh, when can you do it? Well, as soon as the £5,000 check clears, Flower. There must be loads of excuses you could use, because obviously it, it didn't work. It did fuck all to Sabah. You could say, oh, the black magic doesn't transfer from Pakistan to England. It got lost in the cloud. Who knows what he said. He's probably got bigger things to worry about than some woman in the UK. He's already got his five grand. So once the black magic stuff didn't work, Sabah was like, right, let's turn to Google. Good old Googs. Let's see how we can get rid of Saima. The first thing she searched for was venomous snakes in the UK. Now, I briefly covered this in a recent episode. I said there's, there was three types of snake native to the UK, and they missed out the fourth one, the trouser snake. Toilet humour. But she didn't just search for venomous snakes, because she probably came up short on that. She thought, right, there's nothing there. She, <laughs> she googled, it's not even funny, how to kill someone. And then she spent some time reading an article called 16 Steps to Kill Someone and Get Away With It. Now, the reason I'm sort of laughing is not because it's funny at all, because she does end up obviously committing a horrible crime here, but it's the fact that where's the foresight? If you're going to go to this effort to try and kill someone, she definitely wasn't even in incognito mode. She won't use the dark web. She's just gone on Google her IP address is there, her search history is there. Even if you delete it, it's still sort of retrievable by the police. This doesn't make sense. In the short and long of what I'm sort of suggesting here is that it's premeditated. It's premeditated poorly, but premeditated nonetheless. But anyway, once she'd felt that she'd done enough prep with which to get away with murder, because she'd read an article, Sabah then needed to acquire a murder weapon. Now again, let's throw this out to you, dear listener. Work with me on this one. You've decided to kill someone. Okay, you need a murder weapon. For argument's sake, let's say you decide to use a knife, as Sabah did. How would you acquire it? May seem a daft question, as you've likely many suitable knives in your kitchen drawers, but if you take one from the kitchen, then everyone else will know it's missing, and the link would soon enough come back to you. Maybe you'd borrow one from someone, but that would get someone else involved and again put you at risk of being caught. All right then, Stu, well, I'll just pay someone on the street to get a knife or use the dark web. Okay, fair enough. But one thing you probably wouldn't do is purchase a knife from a supermarket where there's an abundance of CCTV cameras and a paper trail from your bank account to the said supermarket. That would be daft, wouldn't it? Well, people, it didn't seem like a daft idea to Sabah Khan. She visited a Tesco supermarket on May 16th, 2016 and purchased a Sabatier kitchen knife at the self-checkout counter. She bought a couple of other things with it so as not to look completely suspicious, but she was caught on CCTV doing so. Now she had her murder weapon, the next obstacle was to wait for a time when there were no other adults in the house apart from Saima and herself. Now miraculously, she'd only have to wait seven days for the timing to be right. On May 23rd, 2016, all of the adults in the Khan home attended Luton Central Mosque for the funeral of a neighbour. The death of the neighbour had nothing to do with Sabah, by the way, it's just coincidental timing. Sabah was on babysitting duty of Saima's four kids, all of whom were under the age of seven, as Saima had to work that evening. She worked as a carer for the elderly, by the way. More Google searches occurred while Sabah was left alone, 
She searched for how long a Muslim funeral lasted to get an idea of how long she had to prepare and carry out the attack on her unsuspecting sister. At around 10pm, Saba put her plan into action and sent a text message to Saima. She said that one of the girls was acting up, crying and wouldn't go back to sleep. Naturally, as any parent would, Saima finished up with her patient and made her way home. She had no idea she was walking into an ambush by her little sister. Saima got home around an hour later, not long after 11pm, and as soon as she entered the home, she was attacked by Saba. Saba had been laying in wait in pitch black darkness having turned all the lights off. In an attack that lasted an astonishing 8 minutes, Saba stabbed her older sister a total of 68 times. You heard that number right, 68 times. Once Saima had succumbed to her wounds and died, Saba just continued to stab a lifeless body with the knife. The usually loving auntie now heard her nieces and nephews crying upstairs after having likely been woken up by the screams of their mother. The attack was so severe that Saima's hand was severed and her head was almost completely cut off. To say that blood was absolutely everywhere would be a massive understatement. With her older sister's body now on the floor in a pool of her own blood, Saba's next move was to stage a fake burglary. The front door had glass in it, which Saba smashed from the outside to make it appear as if an intruder had gained entry that way. She then went upstairs and upturned some jewellery boxes to further implicate a robber as having committed the heinous attack on Saima. Saba removed her bloodstained clothes, placed them into a bin bag along with the murder weapon and hid them underneath her bed. It's not the smartest move in the world considering how much planning went into this attack. She didn't even bother to clean the knife. After everything was set up as far as the fake robbery was concerned, Saba first called her dad, then an ambulance, and finally the police. When the police arrived, Saba at first acted all hysterical and emotional, but as the discussion went on, she became calmer, as if she was focusing so much on the lies she was telling, she forgot to continue to act distraught, and, you know, she just found her sister's mutilated body. You wouldn't be talking this calmly to a police officer. The whole thing was caught on a policeman's body cam. It's available to watch on YouTube if you're interested. Saba can be seen on the body cam advising that she was in the shower when she heard a loud banging downstairs. She said, When I came down, I literally saw her there with glass lying around her. I literally just ran over there. I took a scarf to cover it because I thought I was going to, you know, when you cover the wound and, like, stop it from bleeding. In the middle of her rambling on, a police officer asked Saba what she'd done to her arm. There appeared to be, like, a scratch or a cut there, which was probably from when she broke the glass on the door. Saba replied, She had glass, so I took the glass out and there was glass everywhere. I was just hugging her to me and then I don't know. Despite this weird sort of interaction with the police, at first Saba was treated as a key witness in the murder of Saima Khan as opposed to a suspect. The break-in and the ferocity of the frenzied attack had all the hallmarks of a strong and powerful male assailant. That soon changed though when the police discovered the bin bag in Saba's bedroom a week later, which, as a reminder, contained not only the uncleaned murder weapon and bloody clothing, but also shards of glass from the front door window. Saba was then changed from being a key witness to a key suspect. 
Further evidence was found when police searched her internet browser history and her mobile phone records. All the illicit texts between Sabah and Hafiz were found, as were the messages between Sabah and the fixer in Pakistan. When Hafiz was questioned by police about the affair with Sabah, he attempted to place the blame on her as having initiated it. Hafiz later admitted in court that he was responsible for leading Sabah on in the first instance and said that not a day goes by when he doesn't regret doing what he did. He said, The ones who are suffering the most are my children, as they have lost the most important woman in their life, their mother. This was a junction in our lives where we intended to watch our children grow, to love them, and spend quality time as a family and make memories. Hafiz went on to say, We have been left with a gap in our lives, and we can only pray that she is resting in peace. My family and I would like to thank you all for the condolences, messages and support that we have received from family, friends and the local community. DCI Adam Gallup of Bedfordshire Police said, This is any family's worst nightmare. It is beyond comprehension for the family to hear that one daughter has brutally murdered another. It has been a horrendous ordeal for them and we are pleased that we have received the guilty plea today. We continue to support the family I'm not sure there can ever really be closure, but what I do hope is that after sentencing, they can hear what happened that night and start to move forward. That statement came after Sabah Khan pleaded guilty to the murder of Saima Khan at the Old Bailey on October 24th, 2017. She was sentenced to life imprisonment by Judge Christopher Moss, QC, with a minimum term to serve of 22 years before she is eligible for parole. Judge Moss said in his closing statement, You had for some time planned your sister's death. The killing was astonishingly brutal. In 2018, Sabah Khan's legal counsel appealed her 22-year minimum sentence and asked for it to be reduced. The appeal was dismissed because the judges of the Court of Appeal didn't find that the minimum term imposed by the sentencing judge was manifestly excessive. Sabah's 22-year minimum term is therefore intact and she will remain behind bars until at least 2039. And that was the story of British murderer Sabah Khan. That also brings an end to the third season of British Murders. There will be a few weeks before season 4 starts, but rest assured, there will still be fresh content each week until then. Here's a brief rundown of what you can expect in the coming weeks. Starting with part one next week, the season three special will be a two-parter that focuses on the tragic story of Ellie Butler. After that, I have a collaboration episode coming up with John from the Reddit on Wiki podcast, formerly of the Dumbfound Dead podcast. John and I will be discussing the murder-suicide case of former WWE wrestler Chris Benoit with my friend Ben Davis. I'll also be welcoming Bobby Holmes back on the show for Killer British Murder Stories Volume 3. I'm also looking forward to having Lorraine from Once Upon a Nightmare back on the show to discuss the 1987 vampire comedy horror film The Lost Boys starring Kiefer Sutherland. I'll also be introducing a new weekly segment to the show at some point in the form of 10 minute movie reviews. These will be solo reviews just featuring myself of for the most part ridiculously bad horror movies. I recently recorded the first episode on a film called Llamageddon about a killer llama from outer space. 
It's really funny. I can't wait for you to hear that one. I want to keep the content as fresh as possible for everyone and for myself, more importantly. That sounds a bit selfish, but you have to put your mental health first and to reduce the stress levels, keep the morale high. It's going to keep the show going a lot longer. I have as well decided to revert back to an audio-only format for the show as well because recording for video on YouTube, more so the editing and the setup and the green screen and all that kind of stuff, it's so time-consuming. It probably adds another 5 to 10 hours to the recording week. It was stressing me out to be honest, so I'm just going to stick with audio only. I've got my new mic now, it's easier to set up so I can just sit down, record and not have to worry about the quality. The audio will still go on YouTube by the way, you just won't see my ugly mug on there anymore. Call that a blessing in disguise. For more on British Murders, check out all my social medias and YouTube if you like. Merch is available as always at Teespring. You can support the show on Patreon and buy me a coffee. You can send us some case suggestions at BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or DM me on social media. And finally, any reviews of the show can be left on iTunes and Podchaser. There we go. Season 3 concluded. For now, as always, I've been your host, Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks again so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.